I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher here at Grace and Truth Ministries. We teach on Saturday afternoon. I don't know what other churches are doing. We're teaching at 2.30 to 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. We're teaching on Wednesday, 2.30 to 3 o'clock. And then Mike will play these on the Internet Wednesday night and Sunday morning where the normal places we meet. And what I'm trying to do is I'm not slowing down and the ministry's not slowing down. All we've got is a few people that come in and we got cameramen, two cameramen and Mike running the board. And I'm just trying to tell people the truth. I want to keep putting these messages down. I've got a million things to say. My mind never stops. I've been researching for, I, first of all, I started teaching 60, going on 65 years ago. I'm 81 now, be 82 here in a couple of months. And I've been teaching all my life. I had some bad years where I was off in sin trying to be, become a big famous singer and a rich real estate mogul. And I found out that's not what God wanted me to do. And I'm teaching, everything I teach is in series. And I've been teaching in the series about, on Saturday, about the Christ Mass. And Christ Mass is Roman Catholicism. They shortened it to Christmas and thought that disguised it. And that's led us into eat flesh and drink blood because that's what the Roman Catholics say Christmas is eat flesh and drink blood well that is an idiom that's an idiom of the Jews you can find that idiom used over in Ezekiel Ezekiel the 39th chapter in Romans, a revelation, revelation, the 19th chapter. And this has to do with the end of time, end of time. And you can also find a reference to this in Matthew, the 24th chapter. Matthew 24. Uh, you find this is talking about in Revelation 19 and Ezekiel 39. It's talking about it's talking about the end of time of time when God destroys Gog and Magog, and you can find a reference to Gog and Magog over in Revelation. The 20th chapter, find Gog and Magog there. Gog and Magog was terms that was concerning the the destruction of... Gog and Magog was actually, it is an area of the world where the Caucasians were. And the fact the word Caucasian comes from the word Gog. And you say, how do you know that, Jim? It's really not hard at all. It's really not hard. 
you can take this is why you need McClinic and Strong. You can take the M volume and look up Magog and McClinic and Strong and it'll tell you all about it. You can take the G volume and look up Gog and it will tell you all about it. And I haven't been able to find Gog and Magog in any of my other encyclopedias. Not to any degree. Well Gog Gog comes from coal K O H and Magog comes from cough, cough. When you pronounce that fast, K-A-F, cough, they hardened the vowels and called it gog. Gog. And cough is our word caucus. Caucus. And the Caucasus Mountains... Can you see this right here? It says Caucasus Mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. The Black Sea was a place where the Russians would come down and they would vacation there. They said that uh, one of the big, uh, what's his name with the mark on his forehead? Gorbachev, that he was vacationing down here on the Black Sea when they had that coup that they overthrew his part of the government set him off the throne there. Well, it comes from the word Caucasus. And these Caucasians, this was the area of the Assyrians. And Assyrians or before the Assyrians were the Scythians. And the Scythians and the Assyrians were some of the most barbaric people that ever lived in the world. They actually, the Assyrians invented all of these American Indian torture devices. The scalping, the, uh, how did it get to America? Well, it was brought here by the conquistadors when they landed at San Salvador with Columbus and all the rest of those guys. And they invented, it was the uh, Assyrians that invented tying a man down in the desert, spread eagled on his back, and then they would put a wet piece of rawhide over his throat and kind of tighten it up and then strap him down with that so that when it dried, he would strangle very slowly. They created they created uh, bearing a man up to his neck uh, in the sand, pouring honey on top of him, and then pouring fire ants on his head. Most of that wasn't invented by American Indians. It was invented by a bunch of Caucasians, my ancestors. So that's why they were, and they were considered the enemies of God. It was said by one writer that the Assyrians would go into a town, they would take all the men in the town, cut their heads off, and stack them up as a uh, a memorial out in front of the front gate of the city. It, they were extremely barbaric. So what if you don't like... If you're white and you don't like blacks, reds, or yellows, your ancestry is worse than theirs. So, anyway, I did a message one time. I don't get along with white people. <laughs> I think it's funny. Anyway, well, I never have got along with white people. The majority of white people are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, aren't they? They sure are. Of course, that's the majority of everybody. Anyway, 
So this has taken us into all of these different things. Eat flesh and drink blood. And the Lord tells Israel in Ezekiel 39, He says, Call the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. Come and and I have prepared a supper for you that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Eat and drink blood. And Jesus has said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But he explained that. Being idiomatic, it had an illustration. It's what it was about. And I have looked up eat flesh and drink, but one of the writers said it means to partake in a slaughter. In a slaughter. And when you partake in a slaughter, that's what we are. In Romans, the 8th chapter, the Bible says we are lambs to the slaughter. So we are partaking in a slaughter. And and when the Bible says, eat flesh and drink blood, Jesus said, my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. All you have to do is define the word indeed to know what that means. And it means of truth. Of truth. And the word is aletheia. I've already given you this. Aletheia. Aletheia is the word truth. And and aletheis means of truth. That's the word indeed. A-L-E-T-H-E-S. And let me say something about this. About indeed. If you get a Strong's Concordance, make sure... You can look up the word indeed in it because these abridged concordances, when you find the word indeed, it'll say C index. It's not good enough. There's many words for the word indeed. Also, the word put. Put, it it will say index in most concordances. I don't want any of the new abridged concordances I won't use one I've got one over here that somebody gave me and I will not use it because what they did is Mr. Strong would roll over in his grave if they knew what he did to his concordance it's got a gold uh, cover on it and it says abridged you don't want that because you can't look up put you can't look up indeed and there's some other words you can't look up. It's just not there. I want every word possible in a concordance. This is a this is exhaustive concordance, and it's got those words in it. Anyway, I just stopped to say that to you. Make sure you get one of the older concordances, an old one. Now, all right, so... So when the Bible says in Ezekiel 39 at the destruction of Gog and Magog, which are the ancient enemies of God, the Bible says God's going to say to the fowls of the air, come and eat flesh and drink blood and eat the supper I've prepared for you. And then in, in, uh, in Revelation the 19th chapter, when Christ comes back with eyes as a flame of fire and a great white horse, that's very idiomatic. 
that's the only way they could express a king coming back. There were no tanks back then. There were no airplanes like he could fly in on an airplane. They had to say all conquerors would would ride white horses. They would sit up on a hill, right, sitting on their white horse, and ordering their armies to attack. So, so Christ is there, and He says, "All the fowls of the air." There's going to be so many dead people at the end of time that God's going to destroy all of them, all the unbelievers, <clears throat> while He takes us out to meet Him in the air. And when He does this, He's going to say to the fowls of the air, "Come and eat flesh and drink blood." Well, that's evidently a common idiom and a verse that puzzled me for years until I began to study and find this out was over in Matthew, the 24th chapter. I gave you this before, but I'm going to give it to you again. When the apostles come to Jesus and say, what is going to be the sign of that coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus goes to all these signs. Many will come saying, I'm Christ and deceive many. And there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and uh, they'll deliver you to be afflicted, and many of you will be offended. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. And then he talks about uh, the abomination of desolation. That's the defiling of the temple of God, which is not the literal temple like it was in the Old Testament. No, you're not. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's the defiling of us where the sacrifice, which is death itself, will cease. They'll put some kind of warning out to those of us that are believers. You can't go out and witness anymore and be put spiritually to death. And then he goes on down here. He says, if anybody says low here or there, Christ is over here. He's in the desert. Go not forth. Don't you believe any of that? Then he says... The original question was, what's going to be the sign of thy coming? That's what they asked him in verse 3. Parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Physical arrival. What's going to be the sign of your physical arrival? Well, he gives all these signs. And then he says, in verse In verse 26, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Don't believe people when they say these things. The the Jehovah's Witnesses says he was out in the desert in 1914, and they all went home and sold their houses. And I don't know why they did that. Are they going to take their money up to heaven with them? They went out in the desert and sat there and waited for Jesus to come. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. Believe it not. If the Mormons say he meets with their chief prophet out there in a secret chamber in Utah, don't you believe that? If uh, in verse 23, if any man shall say, Lo, here is Christ or there, don't you believe it? Jesus himself was calling Oral Roberts a liar 2,000 years before he was born. Because Oral Roberts said he saw a 900-foot Jesus out there by his prayer tower in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, I don't know how he knew it was 900 feet tall. Did he get Richard Roberts, his DUI son? uh, He has been arrested for DUI several times. And did he get him to hold a tape measure and say, I'm going up in this balloon? And he measured and say, it's 300, it's 900 feet tall. 
And the Bible says, Oral Roberts is a liar. Then notice what he says. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even to the west, verse 27, so shall also the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man be. And then he says, those words I didn't understand for years. For wheresoever the carcass is, where God destroys all of these millions of people, there will the eagles be gathered together. They'll be gathered together to eat flesh and drink blood. That's a very important verse there. But you have to understand something about eat flesh and drink blood. Now, I want to show you something here in John. Go back to John. Go back to John, the 6th chapter. This is where Jesus, the apostles come to Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that come down from heaven. Chapter 6. You say, why do you spend so much time on this? This is very important. Uh, John 6, he says, I am the bread of life in verse 48. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This, what are, he's talking about this bread. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am this living bread that come down from heaven. So when the Bible says we being many are one bread and one body, we're the bread because Christ is in us. And then he says, if any man shall eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. So bread, let me erase this. Bread equals flesh. We've already discussed and we've said that over in Hebrews 10, 22, the Bible says, we enter in by a new and living way. The word way is hodos. Talking about enter into the holy of holies, which is the inner sanctuary. Within the within the temple, you've got two rooms. you got the outer room or the outer sanctuary. And in the outer sanctuary, you got the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the seven candlesticks. And in the inner room, you got one item. You've got the Ark of the Covenant. And that matches up with our hearts over here in the New Testament because the Ark of the Covenant is sprinkled. And in the New Testament, our hearts are sprinkled there in Hebrews 10, 22, or 20, starting in verse 20 going through 22. Hearts sprinkled. Heart sprinkled. The law is written on tables of stone inside this ark. The law is now written on fleshy tables of our hearts. And the Bible, and only the high priest could enter in once a year and sprinkle that ark of the covenant. He had to be a, either Aaron or one of his descendants. Aaron or one of his descendants. So we enter in by a new and living way. This is very figurative language. That word way in Hebrews 
tenth chapter is the word hodos. Well, there the way. That's the narrow way. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Narrow. Narrow is the word thalibo. Thalibo, and it comes from thalipsis, C-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, which is the word tribulation. So, as the high priest, which is Christ, enters into the temple of God, which temple ye are, and he's coming through the veil, and the Bible says the veil is his flesh. Well, we already discovered that the bread was the flesh and the veil is the flesh equals the flesh. And then it goes on to say, and what I'm trying to do is show you how this all mixes and mashed together. The high priest, the priest of the temple now is an office. It's an office. And the reason I said it's an office, Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Order is the word taxes. Taxes means a fixed succession of priests. There has been many priests Before Melchizedek's priesthood, there was the priesthood of Aaron. When Jesus died, Aaron's priesthood ceased and it became Melchizedek. So when a priest is coming in to sprinkle our hearts, that has to be the office of Melchizedek. When the Bible says Jesus is a priest forever after the order, that means he was the priest, the original priest. Where did the original priest begin? The original priest was the one who offered the first sacrifice. And where was that? Genesis, the third chapter. Adam and Eve took fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And God says, that's enough. And he killed an animal. That was the first baptism. That was the first sacrifice. And that had to be Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. If he's a priest forever after the order, over here in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7, you're going to see that. He's a priest forever after the order. Well, Melchizedek, Malach, or Malach, Sadiq, T-S-A-D-I-Q, Sadiq. So this means priest or Lord of peace. So he is the priest of peace or of Jerusalem, true Jerusalem. So, and he started over here. You cannot offer a sacrifice anywhere in the Bible, nowhere, unless you're a priest. If you, even if you were a false priest, Aaron had four sons. Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Well, Nadab and Abihu were legitimate priests. Their father was Aaron. They could offer 
sacrifice. If you go to Leviticus, the 10th chapter, these two men offered strange fire to God. I don't know what they did, but they came into the temple. They were legitimate priests, Nadab and Abihu. And God struck them dead. Struck both of them dead. From then on, all the priesthood would come out of Eleazar or Ithamar. All the priests, including including many of the priests of the Old Testament. Eli, then first Samuel first and second chapter. Uh, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest. He was from one of these men. Ezra was a priest from one of these men. So so when you're talking about offering sacrifice, you're talking about he was a priest forever after the altar of Melchizedek. So he comes into us. We're the temple of God. And we're also the house of God. This this inner sanctuary was called the house of the Lord. I believe I've got a verse here. Let me show you something. In Isaiah, I believe it's 47. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Isaiah. I think it's 47. No, it's not 47. Maybe in 43. Hold on. All right. This word where Christ dwelt between the cherubim, the word dwelt means to house. He came down out of the cloud, sat down upon the Ark of the Covenant, and it means to marry or build a house. And the inner sanctuary was called the house of God. And that's a picture of Christ living in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because in the New Testament, Hebrews 3 and 6, Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We're the house of God. He lives in us. And the veil is to his flesh, and his flesh is the bread. And the Bible says, we being many are one bread and one body. And the bread is the body. In Colossians 1.18 and 24, the body is the church. So when you eat flesh and drink blood, you eat and drink of the church. All these are equal. Bread, flesh, bread, body. And one other thing, Jesus said, my flesh is meat indeed. So the bread is the flesh, and when you eat flesh, you eat of truth. So all of this is equal to the truth. That is as, that's about as figurative as you can make it. Now, let me show you something that's really interesting about this eat flesh and drinking blood. There has to be, this has to do with covenant. A covenant 
had to do with a meal. With a meal. There was always a meal with a covenant. I, I want to get into this, and I don't know exactly how to tell you. If I give you some words one at a time, it'll kind of show you what this is talking about. Look at, look in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew, the 26th chapter. I'm going to have to say this slow so you can get a hold of it. Matthew. The more I study, the more things mesh together. I see this thing go click, click, click all the time. I'm going to show you that agape and covenant are basically the same thing. And it has to do with this Christ saying this cup is the New Testament. To drink of a cup meant to undergo a severe ordeal and particularly a death. And it has this this reminds me of the pinwheel that I will talk about. It's like everything just branches from one source. When you're looking at the Passover, you look at the Passover. The Passover is a death. It's also a meal. The Passover was in Exodus 12. That was the that was the tenth plague that was brought upon Egypt, so that so that Pharaoh would let the children of Israel go, let them go, and God had sent nine plagues that just nearly devastated Egypt. And He said, "Here's the tenth plague, and when I bring this plague throughout Egypt, I want all of the children of Israel. You kill a lamb." Uh, the, without spot, without blemish, and put the blood on the doorposts of your house. And when the death angel comes and he sees this blood scattered all over the doorpost, that's like our hearts are sprinkled. It's on the doorposts of our hearts. When you see that blood all over the doorpost, you will be inside sitting at a table and you'll be eating the Passover lamb. Passover comes the very word Passover. It's the word Pascha in the Greek. And the Paschal lamb was the Passover lamb. So they were eating inside while the death angel is passing over their house. And the lamb is a picture of Christ in the New Testament. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, says He is our Passover Lamb. So we eat of Christ, and we're in here eating while the death angel is passing over. And there's blood there. 
So with the Passover, there is a meal. So when you get into Matthew, the 26th chapter, this is the very last Passover. It seems like it takes a long time to explain this, but it's very important that you understand this. Now, I just got through saying that the covenant, covenant, covenant has to do with equals love or agape. Agape is one of the words love. The other word is phileo, but that's not the word agape. Agape was a relationship that kings had for their subjects. And fathers had for their families. That's exactly what a covenant was. Let me read something to you. This is out of theological word book. This is one of the best study books you can get. Theological word book. Word book of the Old Testament. Word book of Old Testament. This is by Harris, Walkey, and Archer. That's Gleason Archer, one of my favorite writers. Gleason. This is two volumes. And what you do is you look up your number in your Strong's then this has a special numbering system. You go to the first volume, and it'll have an index section in the back, and you look up your Strong's number. It'll give you the theological workbook number. And I did this. I've done this several times. But I want to read to you what a covenant is. Now, remember the word covenant, bereth, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H, bereth. They had to cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. To cut a covenant meant they took an offering that they were going to offer. Uh, let's say a let's say an ox or a lamb, and. They would divide it into two pieces. And they called the man, the mediator. Mediator, before they offered this pieces of this lamb, a mediator was a mesites, M-E-S-I-T-E-S, mesites. It was called a go be twain. When the Bible says Jesus is our advocate, there in First John, the second chapter, 
He is our advocate. That's the same thing as a lawyer. A lawyer is a go-between, and they had to walk between those two pieces. That was called cutting a covenant, and that was before they offered that. Christ is our go-between. He goes between us and God. He's the go-between. That's what a lawyer or an advocate means now. So when you're talking about a covenant, you're talking about eating. And it has to do with a Passover. Because God had promised a covenant is limited to two sides. And there's obligations on both sides. People think their covenant is God said he'd bless me and he'd take care of me and I'd live the way I want. No, he didn't say that. Didn't say that at all. Covenant is two-sided. There's two sides to it. We have gone through Deuteronomy 28 many times in the last several months. Deuteronomy 28 says, God says, Here is my laws, my covenant, my agape. You have to obey these. So this has to do with obedience. Obey my statutes and my commandments. This has to do with the covenant that God's making with Israel. You have to obey my statute commandments. And if you do this, the opposite of obey is disobey, isn't it? Now you say, why are you saying that? I want to make it obvious. The opposite of that is disobey. And he goes into that in the 15th verse of that same chapter, Deuteronomy 28.15. So, you will either keep a covenant with God and obey Him, or you'll be disobedient and suffer the consequences. You'll do one of the two. If you're obedient to God, you say, Jim, what about that inner and the outer man that you talk about so much? You will have to you'll have to be growing. And if you're growing and you're not being disobedient, you're learning. Learning takes a long time to learn. But any time you jump off the track and say, I'll go live the way I want to, that's disobedience. And he says, if you disobey me, I'll send the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and I'll send the beast. The pestilence is all kinds of diseases. Well, they're here in the world today. And I don't care whether anybody likes it. I I don't care who says somebody started the COVID-19. It doesn't matter. God uses evil men to bring about his judgments. He said that over and over. Now, let me read to you Covenant. Covenant. Barith. B-E-R-D-R-I-D is right here. Covenant between nations or between us and God. We are Israel, we're spiritual Israel. Between individuals, a pledge or agreement with obligation between a monarch and his subjects. 
That sounds exactly like agape, doesn't it? That's what agape is. So you can take covenant and match it up with agape. This is love. This is agape that we walk after his commandments. Isn't that what he said after commandments? He Didn't he say that in Deuteronomy 28? He says, you got to walk after my commandments. And otherwise, you're going to suffer the consequences when you're disobedient. Covenants are not something that's one-sided. God picks out his people, says, I will birth you and you will obey me and I will scourge you till you do. Because nobody seeks God. Let me read some more of this. I saw this in the theological world book. I thought, that's agape. It's the same thing as agape. This is a copy that will walk after his commandments. It's an obligation between a monarch and his subjects. Sometimes the scholars will say we don't exactly where it means or where it comes from. And you can match up a concept. Anytime you can match a concept in the Bible with some other concept, it's the same thing. Covenant and agape are the same. He loved us before we loved him. It's a constitution between God and man. That's agape if I ever saw it. A covenant accompanied by signs, sacrifices, and a solemn oath that sealed the relationship. A solemn oath. Remember what it takes to take an oath? One of the common words for oath is the word shabua, S-H-E-B-U-A-H. And it comes from Shaba And Shaba or Sheba, is the word seven. And to take an oath, it takes years of adding to your faith. And when the Bible says add to your faith, Second Peter 1 and 5, it names seven things you have to add to your faith. And Shabuah means taking an oath to God means to seven one's self. So when you add these seven things, you're going to to take years to add the seven things. Just to add the first one takes years. Maturity, virtue, means to grow up and be mature. Has basically the same word meaning as, as perfect. Be therefore perfect. Teleos, mature. They are synonyms. Perfect, mature, virtue. And Shabuah is to be sevened. You get that out of your concordance if you look at it enough. Now let me read some more about a covenant. God has made a covenant with his covenant people. That is all of his elect family. And we have to obey him. It just boggles my mind. My father, being an independent Baptist, along with all of his other independent Baptist friends, they would quote Romans 8, uh, excuse me, they would quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9 every time they got up. For by grace you are saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works, not of works, not of works. Ah! They said that so many times. Works has nothing to do with it. Ignorant, independent Baptists. Ignorant. 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Faith is something you do. Faith works by agape, by this covenant that he has with us. It works by walking in God's commandments. Faith has to work. That's Galatians Galatians 5 and 6. Faith works by agape. I heard those independent Baptists say that a thousand times at every fellowship meeting I'd go to. Works has nothing to do with it. We can get mad and, and run a guy off the road and get a billy club after somebody or a ball bat, and we're saved, and that's all that matters. You ever known any preachers like that? I knew a bunch of them. They thought they could cuss people and run them off the road. My father was one of them. Now, let me read some more about this covenant. A covenant, by the way, before I go any further, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, covenant and testament, I've heard preachers say, a covenant's not a testament. You're ignorant. Covenant and testament are the exact same word in the Greek language. Why they translated some covenant and why they translated some testament, I don't know. They did a bunch of that in the Bible. It was probably some Roman Catholics because half the translators were Roman Catholics. Diatheke is the word. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. That is not only the word covenant in the New Testament, but it's also the word testament in the New Testament. And the word diatheke, being the word covenant testament, means last will and testament. Now, the last will and testament, when does it take force? After the death of the testator. That's the man who drew it up. Testator. That's what Hebrews, the ninth chapter, tells us. Hebrews the ninth chapter. So so if you got covenant over here and it has to do with the death, it has to do with the death of the Passover lamb over here. And there's an eating of flesh and drinking blood that has to do with the death, and that's your death daily. Paul said, I die daily and I take my cross and die daily. So it's our daily death. That's what it takes to fulfill our part. Isn't that the same thing in Deuteronomy 28? 28 and verse 1 through 7 and Deuteronomy 28 starting 15 and forward. And over here, this is obedience to God. Obedience. And this is disobedience. And there's a there's a price you have to pay for disobeying God. That's a covenant. It all has to do with obeying or disobeying. 
it has to do with works of the spirit it's god that works in you to willing to do of his good pleasure you'll either obey god or you won't obey god and if you are elect this is a guarantee he'll beat you with an inch of your life until you learn to stop lying to stop cheating to stop stealing to stop just you say i don't do that are you sure do you do it mentally? Do you ever get mad at somebody mentally for something they did to you and they were vessels of wrath and they were supposed to do that? That's what vessels of wrath do to us. They crucify us. Who else do you think is crucifying us if it's not the vessels of wrath? And they're fitted for destruction. What are we supposed to do? The same thing Jesus did, not open our mouth. Let me read some more of this. To cut a covenant, Genesis fifteen eighteen, that is making a bloody sacrifice. That's what they did here. And that's what you do when you keep the laws of God. You keep his covenant. Covenants are very important. Let me show you. I'm going to show you what I'm going to try to get to what yours is. It was common practice to set up a stone as a sign that a treaty this is like a treaty had been established on both sides appeal is made to the deity as a witness showing that the covenant is unalterable it's not alterable he's picked out his people who his family will be and you'll hear let me put it this way you'll either obey him it's not God doesn't say it's my way or the highway. He says it's my way. There is no highway. You're not going anywhere. I won't leave you alone till I cause you to be obedient to me and stop playing around with my word. See, I don't believe there's any such thing as being a Christian and being a so-so Christian and you're not ever going to want to live righteously you're going to want to live righteously or you don't belong to God it's really that simple when he said be ye holy that's an imperative command that's as much of a command when he said let there be light if you belong to him you will become holy in time it means to give up self A covenant is a marriage between two royal houses. First Kings nine sixteen. The written document on which the words of the covenant written document remember he's going to blot out the handwriting of ordinances, and the law was written on tables of stone in the Old Testament and fleshy tables of our hearts in the new. All these words seem to just blend and connect together. I don't believe the Bible is the words of God. W-O-R-D-S. I believe the Bible is the word of God. We're trying to learn how to pronounce it. You understand what I'm saying? It's like a blending of all words, just like covenant. Covenant and agape have basically the same meaning. If you can find two things that have basically the same meaning, and that has to do with obedience, and obeying is what God ordained us to, and that's why it's not of our works, but is it of God's working in us to cause us to be obedient to Him? Yes. 
you're not going to heaven just because you come to grace and truth once in a while. And you sit here putting up with my message. You're not going to heaven because of that. You're going because God is changing you daily. God has changed to me from what I used to be, and I'm not the man I was at 35 or 40. I am a million light years away from that. Let me read some more about this. In Israel's monarchy, the covenant relationship between the people, Israel, and the king provided a kind of limited constitutional monarchy. It was limited because it was up to the king to run it. That's God. All this covenant procedure provides the cultural setting in which God's relationship with his people is formulated. He does the formulating. He comes up with a formula and says, Okay, I'm the one that sets up all the rules of the covenant. It's my contract. And I pick you out and you out and you out. This is not whether you want to be my son. You're going to be because I'm going to see to it. I'm going to birth you, arrange your life to cross the preaching of the truth. And I'm going to cut your arm to make your life. And you're going to behave yourself. Do you understand me? And you can say, well, I don't like that. He says, well, it don't matter. I'll deal with you. And he's a father that we cannot go back on. And I'll read us some more on this to you. It also gave Israel greater assurance of a beneficent God at a time when the deities were considered arbitrary originators of evil. The evil deities, they said. Klein maintains that he's a historian. Klein maintains that all divine human covenants in the Old Testament involve sanctions, sealed commitment to obey. We have to obey him. And you say, I don't know what all to do. If you are one of God's elect, it's written in your heart and you will know how you're supposed to behave. Or is it wrong if I do this? Well, if you think it's if there's any question about whether it's wrong or not, then it must be wrong. And it also gave Israel great assurance of beneficent God at a time when the deities were considered arbitrary originators of evil. Some scholars hold that the Berith was sometimes monoenergetic energistic and that it is one sided unconditional promise. That's exactly what it is. It's one sided, it's God's side, and it's unconditional, and you will obey him, period. If you belong to him, and if you never obey him, you don't belong. That's the point. Boy, now that's put it hard. The law and promise aspects of God's covenant relationship with his people do not violate each other. He doesn't violate us. When he says, you're not going to live for yourself, you're going to live for me. So it works. Deuteronomy 29, 13 through 14 shows that the Sinaitic covenant, the one that God gave Moses on Sinai, was an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. I've always said there's only one covenant in the Bible. God gave the covenant in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Created is a righteous word. It came from 
it comes from barith it's the word bara means to cut and make fat it has to do with the best cattle with the best crops that's what fat meant to the jew and it was connected to the abrahamic covenant but abraham wasn't the first one to get a covenant where's the first covenant mentioned genesis 9 noah i believe that noah's covenant was extended to abraham because noah was the great 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 grandfather of abraham his son shem received the promise we get the word semitic from that and that's jewish and it takes you all the way down to abraham isaac and jacob and they got the covenant of god I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and you will obey me. It's not will you obey me, that's not what he's saying. You will obey me. Period. Like I said, there's no my way or the highway there. God says there is no highway. You either obey me or you don't belong to me. That's pretty hard words. Deuteronomy, well let me go on here. The Sinai renewal merely stress man's responsibility where the Abrahamic covenant promise emphasized God's promise. The Abrahamic covenant was Israel getting the land. Getting the land. But they had to obey God to get it. You're not going to heaven without obeying God without stopping your sin you say i can't stop it all today i know you can't but in time you will many agree with hillers that's a historian that the covenant they put in parentheses treaty (laughs) what is a treaty that's during a war when our flesh is warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we will all those Baptists I was raised around if you say works they think that's like cursing and you got to obey Jesus is coming back and taking vengeance of all those that know not God that obey not the gospel and Paul told the Galatians in Galatians the third chapter receive ye the spirit of the law by receive ye the works of the law by the spirit or by the working of faith then Paul said to the Galatians, faith has to work. It works by agape, which is the covenant of God. People say, just walk down the aisle and accept Christ, you're home free. No, you're not. That's not even a method of salvation. The covenant tradition is carried into the writings of the prophets and the so-called lawsuit patterns. God's got a lawsuit against us because of our disobedience. But he's got a sacrifice for us instead of us dying, and that was Christ. The prophets indict the people as covenant breakers. Sometimes relating to this, the covenant pattern, by calling heaven and earth to witness. Remember that it takes two witnesses to declare anything. The priestly covenant of Numbers 25, 12 through 13, the Davidic covenant of Second Samuel 7, 
and the new covenant of 3131 of Jeremiah are all administrative aspects of the same covenant. He said it's all one. What's a covenant? My laws and your obedience. That's it. If you don't want to obey and you never do want to obey, then you never have belonged to God. He's predestined us to conform to the likeness of Christ. What did Christ do? He obeyed the Father. He said, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. God's covenant of grace, this covenant, grace has always been here. People say, well, we as dispensationalists believe that Abraham lived in the in the dispensation of innocence and then you had the the dispensation of conscience that Noah lived in that's stupid that is so dumb first of all dispensation doesn't mean anything it's the word doesn't mean anything but the economy of a household oh I-K-O-N-O-N-O-M-I-A. That is the word dispensation. These guys who say, well, they had all these dispensations. They had dispensation of innocence, dispensation of conscience, the dispensation of the law. That's dumb. If you define the word dispensation... Take a Webster's Dictionary. Right here is one right here. Open it up to dispensation. It will tell you that dispensation comes from the Greek word O-I... Look up the word economy. It will say it comes from oikonomia. Say, say oikonomia real fast. Oikonomi. Economy. Oikonomi. Economy. Dispensation is the economy of a household of God. And it breaks down to oikos and nomos. Oikos is the word house or family, and Christ is the son of his own house. Whose house are we? And nomos means the law. It Economies means the law of the house of God. That's us. It's the laws we have to live by in the covenant of God in his agape. That's what it's about. You know what? This is a lot simpler than all those Baptists I was around as a kid. You know, it's really funny. I didn't think they made sense. I used to think, gosh, these guys sure are smart. I don't think I'll ever understand what they're saying, and I never did because they wouldn't say the truth. That's why I couldn't figure it out, saying there was a dispensation of all of this, and they hated when you get into the dispensation of the church and the dispensation of the church ends at the tribulation period then there's seven years that we're taken out to be with Jesus in heaven seven years of what? it's just, it's crazy what really gets me 
and I've said this so many times, it's a re- the reason I say this, I wrestled with it as a young preacher in my 20s. I was wrestling with it as a kid at home in my father's house. When they would say, there's going to be a pre-trib rapture. Pre-trib. Then the tribulation will start. That'll only be for the Jews. It's... When you get into... I'd like to say this every time I get a chance. But when you get into... I hate dispensationalism with a passion because of the definition of it. It's the economy of the house of God. We're God's house. Can't you guys see that? And then they say... After you have the dispensation of innocence, the dispensation of conscience, and the dispensation of the law that Moses lived under, then you get into the dispensation of grace. And then they'll say, at the end of the dispensation of grace, these guys are knuckleheads. I don't know if you ever heard, have you ever heard any preachers preach on this? It's stupid. I would watch my father and all of his friends, and I'd go to these fellowship meetings going, golly, they sure are smart. And they'd have these charts of dispensational charts hanging around a building. And I'm going, I don't understand that. The reason I didn't understand it, it wasn't true. Do you think God gave us something so difficult that we can't understand it? And then they've got a, at the end of the dispensation of grace is the pre-trib rapture. But this is one of the false doctrines that they're preaching in churches. Then, then before the tribulation, we're taken out. They say God wouldn't beat up his wife during a tribulation. You knuckleheads. What are you talking about? You think the apostles didn't die the martyrs' death? Peter wasn't crucified upside down. Paul wasn't beheaded. Andrew wasn't crucified on a St. Andrew's cross. Timothy didn't have his brains bashed out with a bastinado? And what about all these people that were killed during the Inquisition? All the Puritans, before they were called Puritans, the Albigans family, the Huguenots, the Waldenses, the Cathars, and they were killed and slaughtered by 50 million, supposed to be something like that. And God's not going to beat up his wife during the tribulation period. Boy, that's a stupid excuse. The Bible says we're going to die. And the Christians have been dying for thousands of years. The true Christians. And that always bugged the tar out of me. What really got me was that 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 51. When I first saw that, a guy introduced me to it, a friend of mine in Fort Worth. I was about 22. I said, I've never seen that before. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, I've looked up on the Internet how fast an eye twinkles, like one billionth of a second. You're not going to have time to look up. In the twinkle of an eye, and the time factor is at the last trump. 
I've never heard a preacher deal with the time element of the last trump, of the time factor. Never heard anybody deal with it. Nobody, except me. Last is the word eschatos, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S. We study eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. That's eschatos means the last in a series after which no other trumpet will sound. And there's a series of trumpets that sound in Revelation 8, 9, and 10. You've got seven trumpets. Remember I said seven is the number of divine refinement. There's seven trumpets that sound. When the seventh one or the last one sounds, the last one will be at the end of time. When the last one sounds... The Bible says, when it sounds, the mystery of God, of God, is finished. Now, if you want to know what the mystery of God, you study the words mystery and reveal. They're totally opposite. Mystery is the word musturion. M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. It comes from it comes from the word muo, meaning to shut the mouth. It means to be quiet. Why is mystery a mystery? Because the word revealed, revealed exact opposite. Revealed is the word apo calupto. And we get the word apocalypsis from that A P O K A L U P S I S. Apocalypsis is the word revelation. And the Bible says that revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It comes from apo, meaning off with the calupto, K-A-L-U-P-T-O. That's the word cover. And Christ reveals himself to whom, this is in Luke the 10th chapter, Luke 10. He reveals himself to whomsoever He will. And that's only a few entering the narrow way. Many will go on the broad way, few will enter the narrow way, and that'll be the ones to whomsoever he will. So it's a mystery to the world. And when you read the Ephesians, the third chapter, And Ephesians, the fifth chapter, it will tell you the mystery of God is the church 
who will become fellow heirs and of the same body as believing Israel. And the body's the church. So the mystery that's finished at the signing of the seventh trump, several things happen at the signing of the seventh trump. The mystery of God is finished. The last person's come into the church. And Christ has got one foot on the land, the other on the sea, and says, time is no more. If time is no more at the last trump, and that's when we're going to be changed, then there's no no thousand-year reign, and there's no seven-year tribulation after the last trump, and that's when we're going to be changed. That means that if the last three and a half years is a time of tribulation, and I haven't gone through this in a long time, I need to go through it, the 70th week of Daniel, 70 weeks will be the last seven years of time. And you've heard of the seven-year tribulation period, haven't you? Everybody's heard of that. The first three and a half years will be, be three and a half years of peace, and then everything will break loose the last three and a half years. And that will be a time of church persecution. And we may have to die for our beliefs. Church persecution. And I've gone through millennium. It's not millennium. That's a bad translation. When the Bible says thousand years, I'm sorry, it's not the word thousand it's the word kilia. That's a kilia. Kilia is plural. Plural means thousand, according to one of the writers, said it is not an adjective like 999 is. Like 99 sheep are in the fold and one is far away. 99 would be an adjective. Tells how many. Thousand is a noun. And it's plural. If I said thousand, any multiple, I've studied numbers through the years, and any multiple of ten, hundred, or thousand is a form of that original number. It's a form of one, especially if it's a noun. So thousand is a form of one, it's singular. 1,000 is the same thing as saying a dozen eggs. You don't have to say 12 eggs. You just say a dozen. dozen is singular. 1,000 is singular. 2,000 is plural. And that's what Kilia means. And the, and the whole purpose of the 2,000-year reign, the whole purpose, the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 2, The whole purpose is Satan is bound for this 2,000-year period, Dio. It means forbidden. Remember Dio and Luo? Dio and Luo, bind and loose. Bind means to forbid. If you tie somebody up, you forbid them from moving or forbid them from doing something. And Satan is forbidden for a 2,000-year period from deceiving the nations. 
Well, that's really amazing because the word a nation is the word ethnos. We get our word ethnic from that. It's the exact same word as Gentiles. There's one period of 2,000 years where the Gentiles cannot be deceived. That's from Acts 2 to the end of time. And there's a Gentile elect Israel church that cannot be deceived for that 2,000 year period. And I believe that's what they have mistakenly translated 1,000 years. Yeah. When it says Satan will be bound 8,000 years, that's a bad translation. There are no indefinite articles in the Greek, A and N. You can mark that out. All we have is the definite article, B, and there's 24 ways to spell that. So whenever you see A, you have to look at it and throw the A away or the N away because it's not in the original text ever. They didn't have A and N in Greek. The only way you can tell if it's A or N is by the context of the word or by the spelling. Thousand. So, if when Jesus got one foot on the land and the other on the sea, his time is no more, there can't be a thousand years after that, can there? And the last trumpet is sounding, the seventh trumpet is sounding. So if the seventh trumpet's sounding, it's the last trump, time is over. Isn't it? And I know this sounds insane to people. I was really good with numbers. I was always the A student in front of the algebra class. And I analyze everything with my analytical thinking. I don't know why I do that. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. I was analyzing when I saw at 12 years old Christ's Mass sitting there looking at the Christmas Eve Mass or the Pope and the Rome. And I'm going, is this Christ's Mass? Nobody told it to me. Nobody told me about this. It just didn't make any sense to me. What do you mean time's going to be over and there's a thousand year reign after that? Not true. Well, there's 100,000 preachers voting against you, Jim Brown. Well, they're wrong. Ah, You can't add this up and make this mean what they're saying. And you know how many of them I listened to growing up? Dozens of them. And it still didn't make sense no matter how many of them I saw. Now, one other thing happens. How much time to have, Mike? I'm not going to get back to where I was wanting to go. Have to do this next week. One other thing happens at the signing of the last trump or the seventh trump I don't even understand the last trump sounds I need to show you one other thing in Revelation I'll show you this in Revelation 11 and 15 the last trump sounds 
in 10 and 7. And that's when the kingdoms of this world, well, that's when he's what one for the land, the illness is to have time is no more. And in 11 and 15, the same trumpet is sounding. It's just showing you a different view from John's viewpoint of something that happens at the seventh trump. And he says the seventh angel sounded. Well, you see the seventh angel sounding in verse 7 of chapter 10 in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. And a trumpet was a voice. Told you what to do. It gives you reveille in the morning when it's time to get up. It gives you charge when you're going into battle. It plays taps when it's time to go to bed. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, Now this is what happens at the signing of the seventh trump. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever means from now on, there is no thousand year where Satan is going to rise up at the end of a thousand years. He's conquering all kingdoms. And when you see the last kingdom to destroy, be destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15th chapter. Here's the last kingdom that will be destroyed. And there'll be no more of this after he dies. 15th chapter. Fifteenth chapter. It's talking about the end of time coming. Verse 24. Then cometh the end when he shall deliver up all up the kingdom of God which is a title for the church and the father and he shall put all down all rule and all authority and power the kingdoms of our Lord have become the kings of, of the kings of this world have come the kings of our Lord and his Christ he shall reign forever and ever for he shall reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet all enemies is going to be at the last trump isn't it and then he says the last enemy the last kingdom that shall be destroyed is death that'll come at the signing of the seventh trump won't it there's not going to be any enemies rise up in a thousand years after the last trump it's over I don't know how I can see this and preachers can't see it I don't understand. Are you guys just stupid or what? Maybe you're brutish and you got the understanding of an animal. I can't I can't deal with that. Now, there's one other verse over in Philippians. Philippians three. Now, when the last trumpet sounds, that's when our bodies will be changed, isn't it? That's what he's talking about in verse 21. Speaking of Christ, from verse 20, who shall change our vile body, that it may be like unto his glorious body, that's the change, at the last trump, whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself he'll subdue all enemies when our bodies are changed the last enemy is death isn't it nobody's dying after we're changed 
They talk about people coming out of the tribulation without new bodies and they're dying all through the thousand years. It's idiocy. I, I just get frustrated thinking you guys are that dumb out there. Presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention and heads of this association and that. Doctors of theology and you can't see this. John MacArthur can't see this. He believes in dispensationalism and believes in a pre-trib rapture. I don't see how, John, you can believe that. It's like you haven't even evaluated this. The church has to go. Do I have any time? Nine. Nine. I've got to show you one other thing. And this is going to show you that the church has to go under attack. Now, 1 Corinthians, I believe pre-trib rapture is false doctrine. Dispensationalism is lies. And it's people are looking for an easy out. I'll be taken out any time here. No, you won't. You may die and be taken out that way. You look over here in 1 Thessalonians, 4th chapter. This is a verse that all these dispensationalists use to try to come up with a secret coming. I'll define two words that keeps it from being a secret coming. Verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Sleep was a term used for dead believers. And Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep. And the apostles said, well, if he's asleep, he'll be okay. And Jesus turned to the apostles and said, Lazarus is dead. Do you get it? And then it says, that you saw not as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. He'll come in the air, come down, and all those believers in their glorified, well, they're not going to have their bodies till they hit the ground and pop back up. And that's the same time period of there'll be two in the field, one will be taken, the other left. It'll be when Christ comes back in the sky. And then he says, For this we say unto you, the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Everybody says, see, we're remaining. We're walking around doing our jobs. And, and I'm a carpenter. I'm hammering. And I'm working in a grocery store checking people out. And I'm remaining. That's not what that word remain means. The word remain, perilipa, P-E-R-I-L-E-I-P-L means to survive a great slaughter. We were to alive, it should say, and survive. That would be the best word. We that are alive and survive. Now let's keep reading. Shall not, we were to alive and survive unto the coming, the parousia, the physical arrival of the Lord, which will be at a time where the eagles eagles will be gathered together to eat all the dead bodies that will be up on the earth. 
shall not prevent means to go before fatano it means to go before those that are asleep in christ he'll come from heavens they'll all come with him they'll hit the ground their bodies will be changed in a moment in the twink of an eye for the lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout when you define the word shout there's no possible way this can be a secret coming Kaluo. War cry. Now what in the world is Jesus doing making a war cry at the beginning of a tribulation with a silent coming? All right, charge. Now come on up here to heaven in silence for seven years. It's crazy. This is the pre-trib raptures people, one of their favorite verses. They say it's a silent coming and it's not because of the word remain and the word shout. He's not making a war cry at a silent coming. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a war cry, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God at the last trump. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain, survive, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Boy, I look forward to that. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Am I out of time, Mike? I'll give you one other thing. Matthew, the 24th chapter, the one we were on earlier, when he says, Matthew 24, when they say, what's going to be the sign of that coming at the end of the world? And we read that in verse where the eagles, where the carcass is there, where the eagles be gathered together. Then he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, after it's all over. Of those days will the sun be dark and the moon will not give her light. I've got a lot to say on that. It's not talking about literal sun and literal moon. You can go into Micah, the third chapter, and see that. And the stars shall fall from heaven. There's seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. Now, what's the time factor after the tribulation? And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. The time factors after the tribulation, isn't it? Last trump. Great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. In this same context, he says down here, when he comes back, verse 40, then shall be two in the field. The one shall be taken up to heaven to be with the Lord in the air. His body will be changed, boom, immediately. He'll meet the Lord in the air with his new body. It's like he'll bring the spirits back and it'll boom and hit. they'll hit the earth, get their new body and be right back in the air with him like a yo-yo. And people say, what's this talking about? 
two women shall be grinding to mill. The one shall be taken to meet the Lord in the air, and the other left to be destroyed. And that's the truth about the last trump. Pre-trib rapture is false doctrine. That's given a lot of people false hope. I don't know how else to say it. If it doesn't add up, it's not true. Dispensations—I'm embarrassed when somebody starts talking about dispensations of God. You mean oikonomia, economy of God's household, oikos, house, law, nomos? You know why preachers can't understand this? They don't define words. It's real simple. They won't define any words. I'm just, this all goes back to God's covenant. I got, I got to come back to the covenant of God next week. There's so much on that. Covenant and agape are basically the same thing. If he loves somebody, he chases them. So they'll quit trying to fulfill their own desires and their own laws. Am I out of time, Mike? Uh, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I love everybody that's associated with this ministry and loves the truth. You're my brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. These people in need, Lord, help them. Give us a way so that they can live and pay bills and have a place to stay and have food. God will give you praise for everything you do because it's all for our good. What you're doing, you're whipping this old outer man, this man that wants to be disobedient, so we'll obey you. Thank you for the beating I've received. I really love you, Lord, for that because you've changed my mind. You've caused me to repent. Fight our battles for us. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I didn't mean to get in pre-trip rapture, but I did. I really believe this with all my heart.